is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this morning I'm talking to Rhonda Fleming Hayes, who is the author of Pollinator Friendly Gardening. Welcome, Rhonda. Well, hello, Daryl. Thanks for having me. Well, I think everybody, you you have a, a fantastic book. It's good. Thank it's you. It's got a lot of information in here. I was surprised when I when I received my review copy. It was. I was surprised that it was rather thin, and then I started looking in it, and I said, my goodness gracious, it's it's just absolutely jam-packed. And for people that don't know what a pollinator is, can you tell them, please? Well, there are certain insects and other animals that transfer pollen from one flower to another or one blossom to another, and that's what institutes the fertilization of of a flower that eventually gives us a, a seed or a fruit. And so why are they important? Well, they're important, uh, especially bees, because um, you've probably heard that that factoid that goes around now that um, pollinators are responsible for every third bite of food that we eat, and um, animal pollination uh, is responsible for uh, 90% of um, the world's plant reproduction. So you might say that pollinators make the world go round. Oh, that's a good point. You said it's one every th- one in every three bites. Yes. Yeah. And so every bees. just about every fruit. Um, just about um, plants like corn and wheat are wind pollinated, mm-hmm. but good things like apples and strawberries and cherries, watermelons, things like that, we all have the pollinators to thank for that. Now a lot of people have heard about the bees. Can you tell us what's going on with? Well, first off, that there there are more than the honeybees, right? Right. There are all sorts of wild bees or, or what we call native bees like bumblebees and, and carpenter bees, sweat bees, mining bees, all different kinds of other little bees that are out there, mason bees uh, that are out there um, working kind of behind the scenes. Uh, the honeybee gets a lot of the attention because we depend upon them for so, much, so many of our agri- agricultural crops. And honeybees, are. some people may be surprised to learn, are not native to North America, are they? No, they aren't. They are not a native species. They came over with the European settlers in the 1600s. I wonder what all the other bees thought of when these new kids on the block showed up. <laughs> Oops, here's a lot of competition. <laughs> I would think so, especially since honeybees do um, do tend to stay together. They're social bees, unlike some of the others that are that are pretty solitary. And, uh, and I was so really popular surprised. since they make honey. <laughs> well, yes. Um, and, well, some of the other bees, I'm trying to think. There are bees, I guess they only make... Bee bread, don't they? The other bees to feed their well, larvae. Yeah, like like bumblebees, they'll or other bees that uh, will take the the nectar and the pollen, and they'll they'll mix it into a, a, a kind of a what they call bee bread, and that's for their larva. And um, bumblebees, uh, they do the same thing, but they probably only make like a teaspoon of honey, where honeybees will make pounds and pounds of honey. 
and honeybees are the ones that are, well, we thought that the honeybees were the only ones in trouble because they were sort of, they, they were a big indicator because honey, you know, people that raise honeybees and carry them around to different orchards to pollinate discovered that their bees were dying in great numbers. But now we know that there are other pollinators in big trouble too, don't we? Oh, yeah. Um, I think anytime there's a, a problem with one species, you get a lot of overlap uh, with honeybees and what's called colony collapse. Uh, there's not really one particular issue that, that scientists can really point to. There's just It's more like a, a perfect storm of problems. There, it's habitat loss, it's pesticides, parasites. Uh, disease, uh, in some cases climate change, bad weather. So there's just a number, there's just like this, all these different things and kind of hitting these little guys. And um, it, it's getting to the point where, um, you know, where people are very concerned at this point. I remember when I first realized that there were no more honeybees visiting the clover in my lawn. And I noticed a little bit later when the apples started blooming that there were no bees on my apple trees. And for a couple of years we got really bad crops. And then um, then a, a bunch of little mason bees and other kinds of pollinators came in. So we had some help. But then I noticed after the area got kind of built up, and I don't know whether it's because of the number of people that spray pesticides or uh, or what happened, or whether it was just loss of habitat, as you mentioned, that was responsible for those other pollinators to just take a real nosedive. Um, yeah, um, it's it's uh, once again it's it's the you know it's all those things. It's probably if you you know you had development, you obviously get habitat loss, and that's where I talk in the book that um, I feel like. As gardeners, we have this chance to make up for a lot of that habitat loss. There's there's some problems that face pollinators that, you know, kind of out of the out of control of the the regular person. But gardeners can plant and they can also landscape um, in certain um, areas, and that'll help pollinators. And and one garden is not going to do it. But but in my book, um, I kind of say that um, if collectively, if all if you know, if lots of individual gardeners were to make these changes, then it be kind of becomes a, it kind of creates a movement, and then um, we we may have a chance to uh, undo some of the harm that's been that's been uh, inflicted upon pollinators. I certainly hope so. Uh, we're getting our basin bees back, and some and carpenter bees never really left us, and and that's yeah. almost I could almost say that that's unfortunate, but they do buzz pollinate and and pollinate some other um, crops too. But I know in a lot of areas, people are saying that they're still not seeing that bounce back on bees. So I think most of what we're going to talk about today is what we can plant and how we can plant and what other things that we can do for them. But let's talk a little bit about some of the other pollinators because there's other things besides honeybees and bumblebees and mason bees. What else is, is there out there? Well, I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that flies are pollinators because most people just think of house flies. But there are any number of um, fly species. Uh, the, probably the most common one you would see in your yard is the flower fly. And uh, at first glance, you might mistake the flower fly, flower fly 
for a bee. Um, they tend to, at first glance, look like one. But if you, once you start to observe them, you'll notice there's a little bit different wing structure. Um, the eyes look different. Um, the, the body is more shiny. But they're actually pretty significant pollinators in our gardens. And there's lots of little tiny little surfed flies and different ones. And although they're nowhere efficient as a honeybee or a mason bee, they are out there doing their part. Uh, beyond flies, there are moths. Moths pollinate at night. Um, there are uh, bats, and then we have hummingbirds. Um, so um, butterflies, of course. But um, as I said, they're 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 definitely pollinators. They they don't do it in the in the same manner that bees do. But they're all out there doing their part. And with surfed flies, um, you get the added benefit of of getting the surfed fly larvae that eat nasty critters in your garden like exactly you'll get a lot of overlap with um beneficial insects and pollinators because once you start gardening in a way that you're you're supporting pollinators you you kind of automatically get the benefit of uh, beneficial insects too well and we all need some help in the garden i think I, i grew up just after world war ii and of course powerful pesticides came into use about then. They were developed, some of them during the war and some of them right afterwards. And I think too many people around the world, or at least in the developed lands, started using different pesticides instead of letting my nature do the job. Oh, exactly. Um, you know, and I think gardeners are, are, are kind of, they kind of have the mindset um, through marketing and, and maybe, you know, community standards that they feel like if they see some kind of damage on their plant, they feel like they have to do something, they have to spray something. And I always tend to say, well, wait just a minute and uh, first of all, look at the damage on your plant and try to decide, is it cosmetic or is it is it truly going to be harmful to the plant? Uh, and then um, ask yourself, well, what what is the, the the actual pest that's causing the problem? Because there might be some uh, some bugs there that you see that are just innocent bystanders, and you don't want to just go and spray willy nilly and hope you you hit the pest. You really want to target the pest or know more about it so that if you do spray, you can be smart about it as far as the the timing and 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 especially trying not to spray when pollinators are active. So I always say try to identify the pest and. And oftentimes, um, you'll find the situation is maybe temporary. That bug may be only in that particular life stage for, say, a week, two weeks. And after that, they'll be gone, and you don't have to worry about them anymore, and your plant will probably uh, regrow from that damage. Uh, Other times, maybe these beneficial insects will show up, and they'll do do all the pest control for you. So I always kind of say, Sometimes you have to kind of unlearn what you've, you've learned about pest control, step back, and, and see if it doesn't resolve itself on its own. Yeah, I think, you know, bees and other pollinators are in a tough position because there are big companies that have thousands and thousands of dollars to spend on advertising, and they don't have anybody but us to talk it up for them. Um, exactly. One of the things that always fascinates me every spring is that aphids will glom onto my apple tree. And sometimes they can be in really significant numbers depending on what the weather's been. But 
in just a few days after I see groups of aphids all over my apple tree, I will also see ladybugs and ladybug larvae. Um, yes, that happens. Um, I had that happen uh, last year. I happened to have a uh, just a, a milkweed. I have lots of milkweed planted for monarchs, but I happened to notice one of my tropical milkweeds was just covered in these really nasty-looking aphids, and I thought, oh, you know, note to self, remember to get out here and, and spray that with some water to knock those aphids off, and then I kind of forgot about it. And then the next time I looked, well, lo and behold, yes, there, there were some of those, those ladybug larvae, and they were working in them over, and uh, in a couple days they were gone. So exactly, I, I think, why should we do all the work we should just sit back and let Mother Nature do it. <laughs> yeah, she's been mil- doing it for millions of years without our help. She, yeah. I, I think she can last for another few years without oh, our, our helping hand. And you brought up a good point. If you see a pest, if you see something like aphids, aphids are very, very easy to wash off with a strong jet of water. Oh, definitely. Um, you don't have to reach for the spray. You don't have to reach for the seven dust or something like that. That will be harmful. And we can talk a little bit more about pesticides and what happens to the garden when we use the pesticides because I think a lot of people don't understand the auxiliary damage that they're causing. And when we come back, I'd like to talk to you. You mentioned um, different plants for pollinators, and we're going to be talking about that and perhaps plants in different parts of the country that might attract different insects and different beneficial insects. We'll be right back after this. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Rhonda Fleming Hayes, who is the author of Pollinator Friendly Gardening and you know, right before we started recording, I'd ask Rhonda how she got into gardening and how she got into bugs, because this is fantastic, Rhonda. You are the fourth or fifth woman that I have talked to in the last year or so that's gotten interested in bugs. So how did that happen? Have you always been a gardener, and did you always watch insects, or what happened? Well, um, you know, I think I've been gardening for as long as I can remember in some form or fashion. Uh, I came from a fam, I come from a family of gardeners, and uh, you might say I had a plant-based childhood. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my maternal grandmother, um, she had a, a beautiful, uh, I grew up in Southern California, and she had uh, come from the South where most of her gardening was, um, you know, hoeing, 
melons or picking cotton, not not fun things. And when she moved to you know to Southern California, she was able to garden for fun. And although she had this this modest sized yard, it was just filled with all sorts of beautiful blooms and and you know exotic fruits that she was able to grow. And I we we lived down the street from her, and so I spent hours in her garden, you know, just kind of going around and exploring. And uh, one of my memories, you know, you talk about women and bugs. You don't usually think about little girls and bugs. But one of my memories is that she had this stand of pink lantana. And there were always these little skippers. You know, skippers are not quite a butterfly, not quite a moth. They're little winged, little uh, kind of triangular-shaped little insects. And there used to be just hundreds of them on this lantana. And one of my favorite things to do when I was little was to walk over there and stir them stir them up, and they would flutter up in the clouds, and then they'd settle back down, and then I'd stir them back up again. And the other day, you know, I thought about that, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I hope I have atoned for harassing those little pollinators. <laughs> So, you know, uh, back in the, you know, we didn't have all these these iPads and tablets. We just, you know, we play, you know, the joke is that we played with sticks and mud. Well, I played with bugs, too. Uh, And I think there was a a long period when I didn't really think about bugs in my garden. And, um, you know, I talk about how one day I was in my um, Kansas, in in Kansas, uh, I had a a kitchen garden. uh, That was about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and I was... um, I was sitting there one day, and uh, I had just gotten through weeding, and I was resting on the bench, and I, I kind of looked around I, this, this kitchen garden where I grew all sorts of herbs and vegetables and fruits for my family. I, I, you know, I was always cooking these, these lovely gourmet meals for them. I probably spoiled them, but then I thought, well, they're going off to college you know, who am I going to cook for? Who am I going to feed? Uh, you know, I'm one of those people that has this need to nurture people. And then I looked over at um, this, this sound, and it was a, a couple little bees buzzing there on uh, some flowers that I had planted by my peppers. And I thought, wow, it's like I'd never seen these hardworking little insects before. And I thought, well, that's who I'm going to take care of. And I had already been interested a little bit in beneficial insects, and I thought, well, I'm going to garden specifically for pollinators from now on, and I'm going to invite more of them into my yard, and hopefully that will, you know, I'll benefit from that, and so will they. So I kind of evolved from gardening purely for my own benefit to um, creating more wildlife habitat. How big a garden did you have? Well, it was about um, 20 by 30, and I was in a neighborhood that was, um, oh, what, what should we say, a little uppity. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, uh, I knew that I wanted to have this kitchen garden where I was going to experiment with lots of heirloom vegetables. But it was kind of in the front of my house. Not smack dab in the front, but a little, let's say, front and to the left. And um, so that I, I, was, I thought, well, people aren't going to uh, appreciate me farming in this upscale neighborhood. So I so we, we built a little lovely picket fence around it. And uh, the, the, the reaction was usually about 50-50. Half the people loved it and the other people, other half hated it. And I think they thought I was the nutty woman on the corner, you know, growing food in my front yard. But, but what's one of the latest trends? 
I was just ahead of mm-hmm. my time. Very much ahead of your time. Because now, of course, la- edible landscaping and and even growing grain in your front yard is getting to be an accepted practice. You, oh, had, exactly. you made me laugh when you mentioned the picket fence because I remember listening to Felder rushing at a talk that he was giving some years ago, and he said you can do anything you want as long as you put a pretty picket fence in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like Felder rushing. That, that's, a, you know, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, he's a, he's a hoot and a half for those of our he listeners is. that haven't yeah, ever he heard them. Now, you mentioned that you had gardened in, uh, that you were in, in Southern California, and then you end up in Kansas. And you're well, not in Kansas now, are you? No. Well, actually, um, I think that I uh, I grew up with gypsy parents, but um, then I happened to marry a man who was what you call subject to transfer. And with his job, we have lived in uh, Tennessee, um, Illinois twice, Kansas twice, <laughs> Iowa, and England, and then here I am in Minnesota. Have you gardened in all these different places, or just lived there? Um, I've usually uh, attempted to garden. Sometimes we've only lived someplace for a very short time, but then um, I didn't know that we were going to live there for a short time. Sometimes uh, because of my husband's job, he's kind of a troubleshooter, and we're transferred at the last minute or without a whole lot of notice. And so sometimes I've I've planted daffodils and, and not seen them bloom. But Aww. I have had the, the advantage of the fact that I've had to uh, learn about lots of different climates and gardening zones and lots of different plants. Um, and so it, it's been uh, an experience that's been uh, uh, sad because I've had to say goodbye to lots of gardens that I've started, but I've also learned so much. I imagine it must have been quite a culture shock to go from, say, gardening in England to someplace with clay soil. <laughs> uh, just like I discovered when I, you know, I grew up in Illinois, and then Dad got transferred to New Jersey. I was a, I was a corporation kid. My dad I didn't get transferred quite so many times as your husband, but um, quite a few. And we went from you know twenty feet of topsoil in northern Illinois to um, rocky what I thought was clay soil in New Jersey. But really, when I came down here and I discovered what real clay was, I went, oh, we didn't have clay at all. (laughs) There was a brick factory up the road from where our home is now. Oh, that's probably a good hint right there. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't didn't know about that. So so you learned about, uh, were you watching the pollinators? You said you learned about them and you started watching them in Kansas. Where did you go uh, after that? Well, after we, um, so I was there for a while in Kansas, and I was, um, from then on, I, after I kind of came to that revelation, from then on, whenever I made any kind of garden decision, anytime I bought a plant, I would say, well, how does this plant create habitat? Or um, if I added any kind of landscape feature to the yard, I would say, well, how does this create habitat? And um, I was building on this habitat. I had um, lots of pollinator-friendly plants. Um, I also had a pond, a a, a water feature that that also um, brought in lots of wildlife into my, my garden. And, of course, then we did move, and we moved to Minnesota. And, oh, that's a steep learning curve because there's snow on the ground six months of the year. So, mm-hmm. um, 
at that point. But you know, you know, with gardeners, we always want to grow what we can't grow. And when I used to be uh, in California, wishing that I had some, that I lived someplace where there were seasons and I could grow things like lilacs or or, <laughs> or fruit trees. And now I'm in Minnesota, and I think, oh, some days I wished I was back where I could grow succulents all year round and lemon trees. So you know, it's the grass is always greener. Yeah, I guess it is. And, you know, so many of us like like to push zones anyway, or we'll just be creative and find a different way to grow things. I went through a tropical phase, and I would haul the plants in and out every winter <laughs> and every spring. And it was, you know, finally I just said, what am I doing this for? I don't like them all that well. <laughs> We do go through different phases, don't we? We we do. We do. And I went through this this cereal lust phase for salvias. And I just I would grow by every salvia that I could find. And of course, you know, only half of them are happy here. And a lot of them like a much drier climate or something else oh, yeah. that I couldn't provide. And now I battle shade because my once fully sunny yard is is very very shady now. So you've grown it you've lived in different places and gardened in different places. Do you find that the pollinators change or do you you have the same usual suspects? Well, actually um you're going to find a lot lot more in warmer climates simply because that favors more insects. Um, if Once you get all the way up towards Minnesota, you will have butterfly species, but you'll have nowhere near the same number that you might have further south. So uh, I had to um, get used to that in a way. I was used to seeing so many different butterflies in my Kansas kitchen garden. And the first couple of years when I was in Minnesota, I felt like, oh, what am I doing wrong? But then I just had, you know, after some research, realized, oh, there just aren't as many species up here, and you're not going to see them in as great of numbers because of the weather. Interesting, because I always figured that, well, and I don't know where I got this in my head from, but I always figured that the farther north you went, you wouldn't have very many mosquitoes because it would be too cold for them. And that certainly isn't the case in Minnesota or Maine. (laughs) They sometimes say it's the state bird. Um, I don't find too many problems with them, but, but yes, they're definitely up here. Okay, and so your pollinators, your butterflies change. Did you see, um, say, hummingbirds in your southern California, or not hummingbirds, but bats in your southern California garden? Uh, way back in Southern California, I don't think um, I, they were on my radar. I don't think I was looking for bats. Um, when I lived in Illinois, we had uh, bats um, that visited our, our garden uh, and that will also visited our attic. Um, I, I think that when it comes to bats as pollinators, um, they're not very common in the U.S. as pollinators. Um, they're obviously out and about. But um, as far as pollinating any food plants, you have to go kind of to Arizona and then over the Mexican border uh, because bats pollinate things like agave. So if you know if you like margaritas, uh, thank thank a bat because the uh, agave, you know, that's how they make tequila. So, uh, but but I don't think that uh, we have bats as pollinators when we get further further into the rest of the United States. Okay, but we do have moths, especially hummingbird moths. And for those of you that don't know what a hummingbird moth is, you might even think that it's a hummingbird 
until you realize that it's night and they're visiting your flowering tobacco or something. Um, exactly. That's it's you know they're they're so large and they and they move the same way as a, a hummingbird and you will mistake them. Um, you know and they have uh, they're they're really fun to watch um, and you'll see them about. But they also have a dark side that um, their larva is the tomato hornworm. And mm-hmm. we've, we've all picked those off of our, our tomato plants. So sometimes a, a pollinator in one form is beneficial and other times uh, in a different form, like in its larva, it can be a problem. And uh, there's a lot of those gray areas when it comes to uh, insects and pollinators. We have to take a little break right now, but let's talk some more about that when we come back. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today I'm talking to Rhonda Fleming Hayes, author of Pollinator Friendly Gardening. And right before the break, we were talking about hummingbird moths and how their larvae can be a pest in the garden. They can be hornworms. And it struck me that another one that I used to see a lot when I worked for the extension office um, were people would bring in caterpillars that were mowing down their dill they were eating it all and unfortunately sometimes they had sprayed them and the poor little things were dead and those are swallowtail butterfly larvae well um i think that when you that that's another pet you know that's another um larva that could be considered a pest. Of course, the the black swallowtail female that that laid the egg that became that larva, she's just trying to raise babies. Um, And when it comes to uh, black swallowtail larvae, they're actually um, one of the species that in, in the wild, they would have uh, depended upon members of the wild carrot family for a larval host plant. But because um, herbs like parsley and dill and fennel happen to belong to that same plant family, uh, those larvae can avail themselves to your, your, your herb garden. And in some cases, they, they, can, uh, they munch right through it. And so uh, I always tell people, perhaps you need to plant enough so that you can share them with the, uh, with the swallowtail larva. Uh, larva. Um, and sometimes uh, when my kids were young, we would actually take some of the, the caterpillars and we would put them in a, 
dry aquarium inside the house and, and watched the whole metamorphosis project, uh, process. And then hopefully we were right there when they emerged from their chrysalis and we would, you know, take them outside and release them. So there's, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of 50-50 how you feel about some, some uh, butterfly larva because they can do some damage in, when they're in that particular life uh, stage of their life cycle. But most of them don't do a whole lot of damage. And, uh, of course, when we're planting for pollinators, we need to think of larval food sources, don't we? Uh, yes, I think that, you know, um, we, we kind of we talk about bees a lot. Uh, bees don't really interact with the foliage of plants, but butterflies, they definitely need, um, they, would, they will not exist or survive unless they have these larval host plants for their caterpillars. And in many cases, they're, they're native plants that they need. Um, I think the most um, uh, familiar relationship between larval host plants is that of the monarch butterfly and the milkweed plant. Um, while some butterflies have several different types of plants that they can rely upon, monarchs need milkweed. That's the only thing that, that they, their larva can eat. And that's why, um, you know, monarchs are kind of in crisis right now from habitat loss because um, there simply isn't a lot of milkweed about now. Um, one of the, the, there's some good news for monarchs. There's a, a government initiative now that um, they're going to try to plant a billion milkweed plants, if you can imagine that, um, all the way from Duluth, Minnesota, all the way to Texas along the monarch migration route. So that's um, that's an impressive project and I think if it if it you know if we if we can do that um, it's going to make a huge difference and that's where once again we go back to where I say you know in if you put some milkweed in every garden eventually that creates a chain of gardens and a, what they call a habitat corridor that um, monarchs uh, can follow all the way along until um, they get to their overwintering spot in Mexico. You know I think a lot of people get overwhelmed when they think of, well, I can't plant so many milkweed plants or I can't do this or that because I don't have space. But in actual fact, as, as you mentioned, creating a corridor, if we have these little islands, even if somebody just has a container on their deck or a window box that they can grow some things in for the butterflies and bees, they're all helping. Exactly. I don't think, in, you know, people have to feel like they have to have this large suburban acreage to um, plant all the different plants that, that pollinators need. I think that, yes, that's great if you can do that and if you want to take that as a challenge to see how many pollinator plants you can put on your property. But I don't want people to be discouraged um, as far as, you know, what they can do because it's not only helping the pollinators. I always feel like when you plant these plants and you have all these different um, creatures uh, visiting your garden, it, it only enriches the space for you, too. I mean, I feel like um, a garden without bugs is kind of boring. <laughs> well, especially, you know, and if people go, ew, a bug, but if they see a pretty bug like a monarch butterfly, that's exactly. different. And I, um, I, I like to say now that bee watching is the new bird watching. <laughs> well, I think it might be. <laughs> I'm, I've been, you know, I was raised pretty much in in the ground or on the ground outside constantly and I've always been interested in, in insects but until we had the problem uh, with the honeybees disappearing I really didn't pay much attention to bees 
No, and, and I have to say that I really didn't either. You know, I didn't really have that, that express interest in them. But once you, uh, you start to, you know, go beyond the fact that I, I, well, I think a lot of people tend to think of bees as this generic black and yellow buzzing insect you know, often annoying insect that shows up, and they don't realize how many different species there are. And lots of times they confuse a bee with a wasp. And, you know, I always like to say that uh, bees are framed and blamed for a lot of wasps' bad behavior. Uh, So I think that once you start uh, looking at bees, you'll notice all these different species and all these different colors and shapes. Um, Some of them are, um, some bumblebees have uh, little orange rusty um, fuzzy bottoms and uh, then there's uh, sweat bees uh, that are bright emerald green. uh, sometimes when I, I did all the photography for my book and sometimes when I would be photographing them, I would be like um, noticing certain you know characteristics they had. But then when I came back inside and I downloaded those photographs and I was able to enlarge them, um, it's just really fascinating to see all the unique colors and shapes and to, to notice all their different body parts and how they all work towards um, this whole process of pollination. And some of them are absolutely gorgeous. You've got some beautiful pictures in your book. And I think that if people are not familiar with with these insects, this is a really great place for them to start and to take a look at them. And you've got pictures of flowers and things like that. And while we're talking about pollinators and flowers and bees, um, a lot of people think of bees is only living in hives, but we have mason bees, and people can put out mason bee tubes for them. Um, actually, I had a mason bee. I have an, um, some metal sculpture from years and years ago, and I discovered last fall that a mason bee was going in and out of one of these little metal sculptures. I hope you didn't freeze that? over the winter, but <laughs> but it's fascinating to watch and follow bees and seeing where they're going. And some of them and some of the solitary wasps live in the ground. Uh, yes, mason bees are fascinating. Um, they actually are able to pollinate uh, more efficiently than a honeybee. And in some cases, um, there are agricultural, other farmers uh, or orchard owners that are trying to, um, they, they manage um, they don't they don't live in hives, but they they create habitat for them and kind of manage them so that they can also help uh, help out in orchards. Um, mason bees uh, do a different kind of um, they have a different behavior when they go in to pollinate. Uh, Honey bees kind of hover over a blossom and, and kind of pick at it. Uh, where uh, mason bees just kind of do a belly flop into the <laughs> the blossom and they kind of wallow around. And so they're actually doing a better job of pollination than the, the daintier honeybee. But uh, mason bees do uh, live, uh, hence their name, mason. They will find little hollowed out tubes and they will lay their larvae in a, a series of cells and they seal up each cell with a kind of a muddy mixture of soil and uh, much like a bricklayer or a mason would um, put mortar within bricks and that's where they get their name. Um, and so they, they, you'll find them in your, if you leave uh, plant stems in your garden that are hollow, they will find those. Or like you said, you can buy mason bee houses or, or build mason bee houses uh, to help them out. Now, some people 
probably also were interested in what other houses they can um, build or buy for the pollinators. But what do you think of these pretty little butterfly houses? With well, butterfly, slots in them. well, butterfly houses with the little <laughs> slots, they're, very, they're just that. They're very pretty. Um, there's no scientific evidence that, that any butterflies uh, fold their wings and, and uh, insert themselves in those slots um, overnight or for the winter. Um, in fact, I've heard that spiders like those butterfly houses. Um, mm-hmm. Go ahead and uh, put them in the garden for decoration, but don't expect to, uh, to, it, to be a bed and breakfast for butterflies. Um, uh, butterflies do uh, like little nooks and crannies. They like um, little uh, niches behind uh, bark. Um, I know up here in Minnesota, the morning cloak butterfly, it actually overwinters in the adult form as a butterfly. And that's hard to think of that delicate wow. little butterfly enduring outside in, in the winters that we have. But they uh, tuck themselves behind uh, bark or different kinds of little little crevices and are able to survive like that. So I always say, you know, if you have um, some kind of tree debris, if you have limbs or stumps, um, maybe they could be um, arranged more artistically or um, placed so that they can benefit pollinators uh, and also um, not offend the neighbors. Well, uh, put them behind a picket fence. (laughs) Put them behind, exactly. (laughs) Build a picket fence. No, I think a lot of people kind of have edges uh, edges or corners of their property that aren't aren't so visible, and they can um, do some of these these, uh, more pollinator-friendly landscape um, projects in those areas. Yeah, you can always find a place if you really want to. Now, something else that we should talk about is that all these pollinators need water, too, don't they? Uh, yes, they do. Uh, they, they get thirsty just like us. Um, bees use uh, water to um, cool their hives, and they, use wa- uh, they, they will take water back and, and fan, and they all collectively fan to cool their hives. Uh, they also use water to, um, to re-dilute the, the crystallized honey in their hives so that they can feed it to their larvae. Um, butterla- butterflies, you'll find them in what they doing something they call puddling. Uh, they use puddles of water to, uh, they will, um, the proboscis that they normally would be sipping nectar from, from uh, flowers from, they will use that proboscis to uh, sip water out of the, um, the puddle. And within that water, there'll be uh, minerals and salts. And those are, are the, some of the nutrients that they need to uh, to survive. I discovered one year after we had made ice cream, and my husband had dumped the remaining ice and water out of the uh, out of the ice cream maker uh, that the next year there was still enough salt on the ground that butterflies were using it. Butterflies and oh, skippers. It was cool? it was just a whole lot of fun and I hadn't even considered that. But of course, you know, that's just plain old ice cream salt, no additives or anything like that. And they were having a good time with it. We have to take a little break, but we'll be back with more right after this. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties. 
track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today I'm talking with Rhonda Fleming Hayes, who is the author of Pollinator Friendly Gardening. It's a new book, and you're just going to be out on book tours this year, aren't you? Well, I've been doing a lot of interviews. Um, I've done a few talks so far. Uh, we just had the official book launch in, in Minnesota here, and I have a number of, of talks scheduled around this area. Um, um, I've haven't gone down south where you are yet, but I, I am. Uh, the book is featured in Savannah Magazine right now, so I'm kind of I'm kind of hitting all the the bases, even if I'm I'm not there physically. But I hope to uh, do some more talks down south. Okay. Now, right before the break, we were talking about um, providing water for the pollinators and how important it is for bees and other animals. But people have to be w- kind of wary about what kind of water, well, not what kind of water, but how they present water, don't they? Um, yeah, um, I, I, around my, my garden, I, I guess what, what you would call it is I, I make sure there are lots of puddle opportunities. Um, you know, uh, if I find like a stepping stone that has like a, a cool little recessed kind of little indentation in it, I think, oh, that's great because, you know, when, when it rains or when I water, that will collect water. And that's just a little shallow little little puddle. Uh, and bees and other things uh, will not drown in that. Um, but, when, but when you have, uh, say, a water feature or um, um, something like that, um, lots of people have uh, ornamental ponds in their in their gardens. Um, it helps if there are floating plants because bees are attracted to what they call aged water. If a water has a little bit of an algae smell to it, bees are just attracted to that. And um, you know, people ask, well, can bees swim? And, and, you know, it's hard to find the actual scientific answer to that. But I happen to have um, a little um, garden pond in my, in my backyard. And one day I happened to be going by it. And lo and behold, there um, is a bee. And it's, it's in the water. And it's swimming. It's swimming for dear life. And, of course, it was only a couple inches away from a lily pad. But think if you're a bee, how far that must appear to be. And so sure. I watched it for a little while, and I thought, well, if it doesn't, you know, if it looks like it's in trouble, I'll scoop it out and put it over there. But sure enough, it, it swam over to, or I don't know if you call it swimming, but it, it was fluttering its wings and managed to make it over to that, that, um, to that lily pad. 
And actually, in the book, I have, because I ran and got my camera, of course, uh, in the book, there's a picture, uh, I'm pretty sure it's in the book, of that particular bee on that lily pad. Um, and it was a little soggy, and it kind of just sat there and, and let its wings dry out, and then eventually it flew away. So uh, when you have swimming pools, you know, why are bees attracted to swimming pools? Well, it's something about the smell of the water, they say. So, um, you, 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 you know, you can't help but have some fatalities and swimming pools. But if you want to specifically provide water for, for pollinators, um, you might want to use like a, a shallow saucer, maybe the kind like uh, you would put underneath a, a pot, a, a plant pot. Um, and you can fill it with water, but also put in little pebbles or some people use those glass marbles that you find at the craft store so that they have something to kind of stand on while they drink. Um, I think there are some... Uh, glass floats now that are called bee preservers that have like a little um, kind of a, a texture to them so that the bee can, can grab onto that. Um, it's not as pretty, but you can float tennis balls if you have a, a garden pond and the bees can attach themselves, you know, hang on to that tennis ball while they, while they drink. I some feel people so use sorry wine for forks. Some... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and somebody, I think it was Joe Lample, had a bunch of wine corks that he connected to one another so they wouldn't just roll and, and fall uh, and, and have the bee fall off. Yeah, and that's I saw a, great a couple idea. Of, I saw a couple of drowned bees. We have a little wading pool that's waiting to be turned into a raised bed garden for me. And it rained, and I noticed the bees were going there to get water, but apparently some of them went into the water instead of just approaching from the edge, and I felt so bad. I was able to save some of them, but but not all. So well, we can't say. save every bee, but we can do some things to help them, huh? We can, we can, and if you do get stuck and you don't want to get stung or feel feel like you're going to get stung, you can always put a leaf or something and hold it near the bee and let them crawl up, and then put the bee on the and the leaf on the ground. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, but I like the idea of doing pebbles or marbles. I tried that one year with pebbles, and I found that it was more difficult to clean. And I thought uh, yeah. the, that having something a little larger, even if it's just a block of wood, not pressure treated, of course, but yeah. a block of wood uh, in there for them to climb up on might be a good idea. Yeah, that's another good idea, yeah. Okay, I'm sure a lot of people want to know now what they can plant for the bees and because people always, you know, especially gardeners, want to plant so what, what kinds of things would you recommend for them to do? Well, this is the fun part, um, plants. Um, I think there are lots of perennial plants. Uh, we tend to think of, of, of planting for pollinators as a, as a flower bed. Um, but I also want to tell people that, well, let's go ahead and let's talk about those flowers, but remind me to go back and talk about other opportunities in the entire yard. Okay. Um, as far as people usually want like that, what's that top ten plant list? Um, I don't know if I can uh, come up with uh, ten off the top of my head here, but uh, for bees, let's, let's say a top five, um, asters, uh, coneflowers, uh, goldenrod, 
Um, let's see here, Joe Pieweed. And Joe Pieweed is also popular with butterflies. Milkweed, a lot of people think of milkweed for just monarch butterflies, but actually bees love the blooms of milkweed. You'll find lots of different, uh, beyond bees and, and um, butterflies, you'll find also lots of different beetles and other types of insects on milkweed, a whole community of insects. Um, let's see here, Leatris is, is popular for bees and butterflies. Um, I always like plants that, that hit the top three pollinators, uh, like Monarda. You'll get bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds on there. So there, there are lots of, uh, lots of popular perennials. Uh, when it comes to annuals, annuals are a great way to attract pollinators. Um, you know, they're kind of cheap and cheerful. You can buy a packet of seeds, uh, find some decent soil, um, in, employ a bit of diligence, and uh, they're so easy to grow. Uh, things like sunflowers and zinnias, um, poppies, nasturtiums, cosmos, all those old-fashioned flowers, they're just, they're just going to be covered with butterflies and bees all summer long. But then, um, like I said, let's, let's go back and talk about the entire garden. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that there are lots of flowering trees that are very important to bees, uh, crab apples, fruit trees. Uh, things like that. Um, on my street, um, my street is called Linden Hills Boulevard, and we're popular for the fact that we have all these beautiful linden trees on our, our block. And linden trees, uh, I think they're sometimes referred to as basswood also, um, they're a great bee tree. Uh, lots of people don't realize that there are flowering shrubs that are great for bees. Um, think about using ground covers, uh, vines for pollinators like hummingbirds, uh, like honeysuckle. So there's just not, you just don't want to think of just the flower patch, you know, the flower border for pollinators. Think about your, there's, there's all these opportunities all over your entire yard. I'm always surprised by by how many bees that I see going from my neighbor's beehives over to the very tall trees in the yard. They they start with the service berry early on and the maple, and then they move down and onward to other plants. And I think people need to think a little bit about planting some of those or preserving them if they have them. Exactly, and, and I think another thing that people would be surprised to know about trees, uh, many trees like willow and oak and black cherry, uh, poplar, they're larval host plants for a number of butterfly species. And so you have to kind of get out of that mindset that only the, the, the perennial border is, is only for pollinators. Um, you have to think about you know, all these other plants in your, in your yard. I always like to plant parsley and dill and, and sometimes fennel just to watch the caterpillars. And, <laughs> and in our area, we also have passion vine, which is the host plant for the Gulf fritillary butterfly. And they just go gaga over it. Of course, they will strip the vine really quickly, and you have to be prepared to, to know that that's going to happen. But you just plant a little extra. Exactly. Plant a little extra. Um, we don't have Gulf fritillaries up here in Minnesota, unfortunately. We do have fritillary, a different variety of fritillary. Um, but I do remember that when I lived in Kansas, I had a friend that had an entire uh, chain link fence along her driveway, and it was, it was covered in passion flower, and it was just such a great plant for those butterflies. And a lot of people don't, you know, if they have a narrow yard or a small yard, they don't think about growing up. But that can be, as, as you mentioned with the passion vine, that can be a great place to put some plants. 
Oh yeah, I think there are so many different uh, vines that attract hummingbirds. You know, you can you can grow scarlet runner beans, or you can plant um, uh, any number of um, oh, let's see here, uh, what's it, cypress vine or cardinal climber. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Growing up is a great way to uh, to grow a, a a really useful, beautiful plant in a really small space. So even if you have an apartment balcony, they can. They can still grow something to help our pollinators. Exactly. We're just about out of time for today, Rhonda, but oh. tell people where they can get find out more about bees and, and you blog and your, your book is called The uh, Pollinator Friendly Gardening. Where else can they find you? Or find more information. Um, I have I have a blog and it's called the Garden Buzz and that's kind of in a nod to the the bees that buzz in my garden. Um, and in addition to that, um, you'll see if if you were to Google my name, you'll find uh, various um, articles that I write for the Star the Minneapolis Star Tribune and for Northern Gardener magazine. Um, as, as far as wanting to buy the book, it's called Pollinator Friendly Gardening. And if you uh, look it up on Amazon, you'll find that it's available there. Um, I believe it's available online at uh, Barnes & Noble and also Target. Um, it's in a number of bookstores. You might have to ask for it. But um, I, I think that people will be glad to order it for you. Um, I just hope that, that people are as excited about the book as I am. It's truly been a, a labor of love, and I think they'll find all sorts of great information and hopefully inspiration. It does have wonderful information, and you don't. I oh, I just opened the book and I found your found your water lily bee. <laughs> oh, there, uh, there he is, <laughs> right there on page one hundred and eight. I just happened to. And isn't that, that funny that that you know exactly where that what that bee was doing before it got onto that leaf? Yeah, that's that's interesting. But you've got so much information in here that we couldn't possibly cover it in one day. But you also have some fantastic pictures. Um, it, it's it's just a fun book to go and go and get and take a look at. If your local bookstore doesn't have it, tell them to order it. It's well worthwhile. And we are about out of time. So the garden buzz or um, pollinator friendly gardening. And I noticed when I was googling, you you mentioned Google that you have a very nice article in uh, Mother Earth Living and on their website. And it's called Attract Pollinators to Your Garden, surprisingly yeah, enough. Yeah, I, in fact, I, I think I wrote that about, oh gosh, five years ago when, when pollinators were just kind of becoming um, kind of a, a, you know, a headline-worthy um, subject. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. And I, I hope you all will join us next week here on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.